We want to take a second to thank you for supporting Womance by listening to our podcast. One great way that you can continue supporting us, including those listens, is hitting subscribe, telling a friend, leaving a review. That stuff all really matters. Sharing it on your personal social media is another great way to spread the word about Womance. And another option for supporting us, if we may be so bold, is to recommend going to our Patreon, where you can donate as little as a dollar a month to help us spread the word of woe. If you want to contribute more than a dollar a month, which obviously no pressure, whatever you've got, we are so appreciative to have, but we have awesome gifts for you. If you want a hand addressed letter from Morgan and Isabeau, maybe with some special woe stickers, other merch, just uh, visit our Patreon. We are Womance on Patreon, or is it patreon.com forward slash Womance? We would be very proud to call you one of our patrons. Spooky podcast about romance novels. About damp borderlands. About undertakers. About the veil between the living and the dead. About hating the hot sheriff in town. About the non-chemistry between Meg Ryan and Tom Hanks. There, I said it. About the crazy chemistry between Jimmy Stewart and What's-Her-Face and Shop Around the Corner. About big boobs. About the unfinished business of feminism. But most of all, it's about that first thing. Romance novels. And ourselves. This week, we are looking at The Undertaking of Heart and Mercy by Megan Bennon. Woo! Bannon? Bennon. Names are made up. Is it a made up name? I have no idea. All names are essentially made up. That was <laughs> my point. That's a really good point. That's Thank a you. really good point. Yeah. I guess, is it a legal name? I could not find Megan Bannon on the internet very well. I found a website that was scant. Hmm. No social media. What are you hiding, Megan Bannon? I don't know. They've written six books and they live in the Kansas City area. <gasps> neighbor. <laughs> Former neighbor. Yeah, I couldn't find my I thought that was really interesting because I feel like lately we've been talking a lot about how important like social media persona is to romance novel marketing. And here Megan Bannon is. Which sparks the question, how did you find this book? This was your pick. I picked this up last year when I was postpartum. And I wanted a spooky read, but because I was postpartum, I didn't fucking read it. (laughs) And here we are, another spooky season later, and I was like, hey, I got a spooky romance on my shelf that we never read. We should read it. That is 100% how I got there. How did I choose it? I think I was intrigued by the skeleton hands and the cartoon people because it is a version of covers that I hate with something interesting happening. Mm Mm-hmm. I really like the candles on the cover. Mm -hmm. The candles are great. Honestly, this cover isn't terrible. No, we've got the cowboy hat and everything. The pull quote on the cover is by Helen Huang, Mm -hmm. author of The Kiss Quotient, which we read. Mm -hmm. 
do you want to read the back of the book? I've got it right here if you'd like me to. You might as well. You got the you got the in material. I will say when I picked up this book, the person who sold it to me was super giddy about it, mm. which I thought was a very good sign. Now let's see. Let's see if it bears out. True love might be the death of them. Nice. Hart Ralston is a marshal tasked with patrolling the strange and magical wilds of Tanria. It's an unforgiving job, and he's got nothing but time to ponder his loneliness. Mercy Birdsall never has a moment to herself. She's been single-handedly keeping Birdsall and Son Undertakers afloat in defiance of sullen jerks like Hart A. Cart, the man with a knack for showing up right when her patience is thinnest. After yet another run-in with merciless mercy, Hart finds himself pinning a letter addressed simply to a friend. Much to his surprise, he receives an anonymous letter in return, and a tentative friendship is born. Little does Hart know that he's bearing his soul to the person who infuriates him most. Uh, we've got pull quotes from Amanda Collins, mm-hmm. Jin DeLuca, Ruby Dixon, mm-hmm. Sierra Simone, Vivian Shaw. I don't know Vivian Shaw. Freya Marsk, Alana Harper, India Holton. Mm-hmm. Do you know them? I know a bunch of them. Quite a stacked back of the book. Super well-reviewed, super good blurbs, and by well-known romance authors. Yeah, and it's. I would say this book also has some heft. Yeah, it's thick. It's thick boy. Mm-hmm. And the, like the the paper the cover is printed on. These things are all significant in romance because they signify to us a level of investment by publishers, which is always interesting. Um, especially because this book is so high concept. Mm-hmm. I I always bet on losing dogs. I'm I'm the worst. No one should ever take stock advice from me or anything <laughs> like that. I always fuck it up. But I personally, I would be like, no, like this is a niche book for a niche market. Once again, I'm wrong. I mean, is this popular? Based on its Goodreads, it has 18,000 ratings. It clocks in at a 4.14, if that means anything to you. It has almost 4,200 reviews. I don't know how Goodreads correlates to like something's popularity what i can tell you is that it didn't hit like the dead romantics right like it didn't get picked up by good morning america in terms of it's like spooky romance reads like jenna bush hagar or whatever warlord's <laughs> daughter's name is um, well, i don't think it's a book for jenna bush hagar <laughs> i think like that's part of it right like you said it's high concept but what's crazy about it is that both its color scheme its paper and its blurbs make it seem very like run-of-the-mill in terms of its romance but it is truly high concept and its speculative fiction pieces are as integral to the plot as it's like knock off of you've got mail slash shop around the corner yeah so it's a enemies to lovers shop around the corner you've got mail epistolatory love story that does kind of follow the beats of you've got mail it kind of diverges at one key point in those movies those texts mm-hmm. speculative I, I mean like it's definitely like a sci-fi fantasy i don't this doesn't read as like um in the not so distant future when self this isn't an episode of black mirror type of speculative so like in the world of the book old gods were imprisoned by new gods through this veil and then that veil thinned and these lost souls that were not able to pass on to the afterlife which i don't want to get too much in in the weeds although we might have to 
Might have to. Penetrate the appendices of dead bodies and reanimate corpses um, or kill other humans so that they can get a fresh corpse for their soul to dwell in. There are, uh, and become like these zombie-like creatures. And Hart, as a marshal, his job is to go through the veil and kind of help manage these creatures, which are called drudges. Mm -hmm. And an important part of that is to find new dead bodies, make the appendix inhospitable, in uninhabitable by putting a big hole in it, and then taking the bodies to undertakers that live in these quote-unquote border towns who then get grants from the government to bury the corpses. Right. And so part of what's cool about this and why I would say it's speculative because it's like, you're right, it's not like an earth that was or in the not too distant future of like 2042. But they do talk about it as though it's like an like earth is like a distant past. Like they don't even really have a term for terraforma. Um, and it kind of functions like a Western, right? The border town near the very dangerous place that you're not supposed to go, like functions sort of like a frontier. Also importantly, it's only existed for 25 years. It's only existed for 25 years. So it has a real like a uh, sooner quality to it. A real, um, yeah, Western. Yeah, real Western, lots of floorboards, feels like a creaky saloon at point. One of the things that's crazy about the eruption of these border towns is that people need government passes to get into Tanria because there are like all of these really important minerals and like rare earth metals and like things that people want to extract and it's hard to get government passes so then there's like all of you're like well why are there all these dead bodies in like this god veil and it's like people are going in there to try to mine and extract things. And then they're getting harmed by these drudges and reanimated and murdered. And so, like, there's this whole, like, black market for, like, old god shit, which was really interesting and, like, created, like, it's, like, a self-fulfilling problem, which was really interesting because otherwise, how would you get bodies out to the undertakers? But, like, that's also part of the plot, which was fun and spooky. Where are all these dead bodies coming from? It's interesting that you say, you know, it feels like, a distant future earth it feels very divorced because of how literal supernaturalism is in the books at uh, the book and like this kind of gold rush on resources is the result of old gods being bored and starting to make a new world of their prison but kind of just goofing around and not doing a very deliberate job. Hart, in addition to being a marshal, is also a demigod. So he has an absentee father who he never met. And his mother was human. And that has given, as a demigod, he has the possibility of being immortal. You never know until you try. But it does happen. And you also get, like, a special gift. And his special gift is he can actually see souls. But what's interesting is, even though the appendix is the seat of the soul, you can still get appendicitis and get your appendix removed, as happens with one of the main characters, Hart's upstart partner. But we don't, I don't know what that does with his soul. It just means that he can't be taken over by a drudge. I know, but like, where does his soul go? If his I think soul it just was lives in, in his like... appendix. Oh, no, they talk about it. It Like, they reform something in the arm. So, like, that makes it so that he can't be drudgified. But then he has this, like, a tattoo of a vessel on his arm. Mm-hmm. 
and it's like a it's like a beaker and so if you have a tattoo of a beaker on your arm it means that you've had appendicitis and you had to go to like a forge master or like a soul surgeon to implant your soul in the beaker tattoo that's so weird that i missed that this book is chock full of insane detail like it doesn't like surprise me that you're like i can just imagine you reading that part and being like okay that makes sense and then moving on to another insane fucking detail that's that's one of the experiences i had we we've talked about world building this isn't our first foray into genre on genre action Mm -hmm. and fantasy romance certainly not Mm -mm. and we've had times when world building the last book we discussed jinxed you know (laughs) even in and of itself was you know poor world building Mm -hmm. but there's something about when it works that you just kind of fall into it Mm -hmm. or that's what i noticed i was like wow i think this is really good Mm -hmm. okay but here's the thing and i know i think we talked about this in for the wolf as well Mm. how much of a fantasy novel's efficacy is you as a reader's willingness to buy into it all of it all of it you think there like there aren't fantasy books that like people can't help but fall into i think like if you're really resistant to the buy-in like it's never going to work and so its efficacy is thereby sort of frozen i you know like if you just don't buy into mordor and frodo and sam and the ring like the rest of the text isn't going to work for you either. If you're not going to buy into the Shire. Maybe you might buy into the Shire, but you're not going to buy into Legolas or Gimli or like... Well, no, I mean, I'm saying like, do you... I guess where that question was coming from for me is like, is is that it? Is it like the slow burn of alienation? Mm. Which I think is what Tolkien does, right? Like... The Shire is not only, like, an incredibly, like, welcoming and cozy place to start The Hobbit. I'm thinking of The Hobbit. Well, I guess the other, the Lord of the Rings also starts there. Yeah, Lord of the Rings also starts there. But it's also, like, recognizable as, like, Southern England. So that's what you talk about with, like, a slow alienation. Like, give a reader something familiar and make it just a slightly bit different and then introduce more and more change. But I, I feel like this book really hits the ground running with the weird stuff. Absolutely, it does. And starts talking to you immediately as if you already know. Like, I felt like the exposition was also handled really well with Duckers as our conduit. Yeah, even with exposition where I know someone's explaining something to me that I need to know later, I never felt condescended to or patronized. And I didn't feel like we were stopping the action in order to explain things to me, which is deft. It was really good. It felt like I was in on it from the beginning and it made me think for a moment while I was reading it fantasy novels feel like and sci-fi feel like a litmus test for empathy almost Mm, say more so this was my initial thought (laughs) it's like it feels like a way or like a, a a practice like a stretch because you have to kind of give yourself over to a truth that isn't yours Hmm. like you have to find places that kind of orient and root you in what you know that allows you to kind of look around at the story that's the world that's being unfolded for you and I think we really do oftentimes a lot of 
what we communicate with one another is like a story more than it is like facts. <laughs> yeah, I think that's absolutely true in how we communicate. I like, I really like this idea that you're saying because like there's a ton of research that like one of the only ways to grow empathy in adults is through fiction, specifically fiction reading. It's not even like fiction film or television, although those are those work too. But like, there's something really important about the way that fiction text operates on your brain that helps Mm. grow empathy. And I think you're right about the alienation part where you're looking for landmarks that feel familiar, but they're at a slightly askew perspective from your own because they can't be your own because the world is being explained to you. Mm. And like, this made me think of this very strange made for TV movie that came out in either the late nineties or the early aughts with Nev Campbell and uh, Sir Patrick Stewart. I have no idea anything about this film other than those two people are in it. Nev Campbell is playing a daughter and she can see the ghost of Sir Patrick Stewart and she, her parents don't believe her and she's trying to convince them that this ghost Sir Patrick Stewart is there. And she they're trying to come up with a way and she's like well my dad believes in one ghost he believes in the ghost of hamlet's father and so they begin performing hamlet and in the first scene the ghost of hamlet's father shows up and then her dad sees the ghost and like that feels like if you don't believe in ghosts but you believe in hamlet's father's ghost because you love hamlet that much that feels like that thing that you're talking about where there's like there is a there's a magic piece to empathy that functions in text and i like that that i don't remember anything else about this movie except i was like oh that's so interesting that he doesn't believe in ghosts but he sees him because he believes in hamlet's dad's ghost i love that uh the movie is called the canterville ghost there you go from 1996 it's available for free on youtube Mm. If you want to watch it again sometime soon. Can you imagine loving Hamlet so much it makes you believe in ghosts? One singular ghost. (laughs) I can't imagine loving Hamlet that much. I absolutely cannot imagine it. Like, it is beyond my comprehension. I consider myself a pretty empathetic person. I read a lot, but, like, that's beyond my pale. I'm a huge fan of Hamlet. Obviously, big believer in ghosts. Um, so, like, how does this empathy <laughs> conversation enter into the undertaking of Heart and Mercy for you? Like, what what are you finding about it? It was one of those things when I when I thought it, I was like, wow, this is a great way to, like, fantasy is a great way to stretch your skills at empathy. And it made me feel so good to think it mm-hmm. that I immediately was like, that's probably wrong. <laughs> And I've, I've been thinking about empathy, especially with the war in mm. Israel and Gaza right now. And watching people I know really bend their – here's the thing. I hesitate to say worldview because I, I almost doubt they had one to begin with. Mm. But watching people change their minds mm. or at least express themselves differently in real time mm. – and kind of contradict themselves. Mm-hmm. It made me think about is this is there an exercise in empathy or is there just like a willingness to like supersede maybe not the self but like the world as you understand it. Mm. Is that what's actually happening here? Like it's just really easy safe place for me to like shed to kind of like let myself go like and then that made me think about like how easy it is 
for us to shift mindset if it's to our perceived benefit, Mm -hmm. like to the benefit of our perception of self. So I was like, is this so much like an exercise in empathy, right? Where I'm standing in my truth, but I'm looking out at another truth. Or is it just like, I don't actually, is it more like just kind of getting thrown in the washing machine of ideology and like just seeing what rubs off on me? And that's, it's easier for me to like suspend disbelief and let my feet leap off of my truth than it is to actually stand in my truth. I think it's interesting to think about empathy right now because I think what's happening is that in the real world, in this moment, especially also taking in the migrant crisis and also taking in Ukraine, it feels like empathy is a finite resource because empathy has to be tied to material resources. And if I have empathy for such and such group, then I can't have as much empathy materially for this other group. And I think that conversation, especially as it gets um, thrown through the meat shredder of uh, American politics, gets real tough. And I think one of the things that fiction and romance both reminds me and also reminds me badly is that empathy is not a finite resource (laughs) and that like it's not a zero-sum game and that the fact that we treat it that way in the real world is actually a false dichotomy based on political calculation and things like that, not on actual human empathy. Saying that you can only materially, what do you mean by materially? So if we're going to support Ukraine, right, with like weapons and money and other things, then maybe we can't support someone else with those things, right? Because like there's an idea that those resources are finite. And like whether or not that's true is beside the point because it becomes a political question. And like that's what I mean about like the meat grinder of the thing where it's like, you can have human empathy for literally everyone. What in heart and mercy are you like pointing at? I don't think there's anything specific about heart and mercy so much as the fact that like it was a super saturated, super high concept, fantasy, sci-fi, romance, retelling of a movie I don't like, which is You've Got Mail. Yeah. And I found myself so easily slipping into it and finding my feet and feeling comfortable there. Genuinely, it just made me think about genre fiction writ large as this place to exercise empathy. But then I'm like, is that really what's going on? Like, am I actually exercising empathy when I read this book? Or is it more just like a supersession of self? <laughs> like, it's not like I'm resonating. What would having empathy for a demigod marshal who passes through the veil like what would that actually do for me and like what is that actually doing like that doesn't seem like it seems like there's a lot more reliance on my mere willingness to give into escapism than it actually does exercising my interest empathy i don't think you're sp- supposed to empathize with the fact that he's a demigod i think you're supposed to empathize with the fact that he was like a kid raised by a single mom who like lost everybody he loved at young ages at like pivotal points and like hasn't connected with his feelings and the only way that he can connect with his feelings is sure but like what's the what's the what's the point what's the point of connecting with a sad boy 
he's yeah he's ultimately like a sad boy fiction character like demigod hottie not real like his what happened to him is Mm -hmm. is not real and what i'm actually benefiting from is not like what what feels good to me personally is not necessarily just this moment of connection with a made-up being it's the fact that I this world is more interesting because it's more novel mm. than mine. It's novel to my world. And so like it's also a world where these feelings of like love and desire and flirtation are super present and are ultimately going to work out. Like it is mm-hmm. escapism. And so, you know, we we've talked about it as a tool of empathy a lot, but I wonder if how much of that is actually empathy and how much of it is, I think escapism is what I'm looking for. Like it doesn't really have to do with our values and our ethics and like seeing the world through different eyes. It just has to do with experiencing good feelings in a new place. (laughs) That also come with a different perspective and like that's the key. What's the different perspective? I don't know, like, uh, person raised by a single mom like that's not your perspective um the thing that mercy's going through with her family business that's certainly not my perspective i my family hasn't owned a business like that ever and so like it's in the details there right where it's like escapism is important absolutely for all sorts of reasons but the thing that researchers are finding in fiction reading in this stretch of empathy is like it's like a muscle, right? So like if you see the world from a different perspective, it's also a safe place to experience like joy and different kinds of perspectives and like come up with different questions. But like, and this is going to sound gross, but the thing that they're finding is like strangers that you've never met (laughs) function not unlike characters that you're beginning to read to you in your brain and like in my brain. And that their stories are like fiction. So the more often you read fiction, the more practice you have with hearing other stories and like losing or finding your footing in someone else's story. And like it's that part of it. This is a very – see, this is kind of getting at what I'm saying. So if we're talking about empathy, right, and we're like, oh, like I'm learning to understand a new actual person who I meet in the actual world. I'm learning to understand them like I understand a book character. Uh I think speculative fiction and romance fiction is a really great place to really interrogate how you understand a character Mm -hmm. and how much your own lived experience goes into filling in the gaps. Mm -hmm. How a person is versus how you create a story about them in your head it's different. Yep. And I don't think that's actually empathy. That's you filling in gaps with your projector. But like that, it's in that space, right? Like Darcy does the same thing to Elizabeth, right? Like he tells a narrative about her that turns out not to be true. And then she confronts him with it and he doesn't like it. Mm -hmm. But he doesn't stop liking her. And he doesn't stop being curious about her. He has to change his narrative. Mm -hmm. And like that kind of unfolding happens both in real life and in fiction. Like we we don't learn everything about a character all at once. We don't learn their whole story all at once. Those are boring stories. And we don't learn people that way either. And we also don't learn the whole like because they're a character, 
they're inherently unfinished. Right. And they can never communicate who their true selves are with us, right? Like Megan Bannon can tell us who Hart is. Mm-hmm. Hart cannot tell us who he is because he's... For all intents and purposes in terms of our brain, our brain can't make that. Right. Like he's incredibly shadowy. And so we feel it's like that book, um, What We See When We Read, mm-hmm. which talks about that the only thing that's very specifically described about Anna Karenina are her hands. Hmm. But everyone ends up having some kind of visual, well, people who can, not a phantasmic people, but like people who can visualize in their heads, create an entire image of Anna. And people have all of these different interpretations, right? That's one of the reasons fiction is rich in the Academy is because people can bring different lenses and different ways of viewing, right? Characters are different from actual people, but I think you're right. We do treat people like characters and that doesn't, I I don't think that what's happening there is empathy. I think in terms of like the neurons firing, like there isn't a difference. And like that's what the research is pointing us to right now, which is that it is empathy. Like what are what are the neurons firing for empathy? Like what is that f- specific physiological map? I don't I'd have to look it up. Do you want me to do that? Does it, I, no, like I don't I don't know if that's I mean, if there is. There is. There are like a lot of studies about empathy right now. That's why it's like. Um, so so they're saying empathy is when you create a story in your head about another person. When you when you read fiction, they have like brain mapped in the same way that like you're then introduced to a stranger. They're like looking at these studies and brain maps. And like the thing with kids is that like the wherever the system that fires when empathy is happening in your brain because our brains read strangers the way that we read characters is what the research is pointing to okay but do you think that that's empathy to like fill in the gaps of a human with your own kind of assumptions yes i see i don't think the way that it's empathy is right like you were telling me I have this question, like I have this thing about empathy and I'm like, that triggers a story about this Nev Campbell, Sir Patrick Stewart movie, right? And so then it's like, I am showing you that I understand what you're saying by giving you an example from my own life. And you're like, oh, it's not quite like that. Okay, let's go back to the drawing board together so that I can find what it is that you're talking about in a way that I can understand it, right? It's that, it's that. I think (laughs) to insert yourself or to or to narrativize someone else's story in your own words is human empathy. We are inherently self-centered creatures because we we experience the world from self outward. Like I can see it like you know, my toddler is a profoundly selfish creature, but she is not without sympathy and she's not without the ability to understand that other people are experiencing the world in a way that she is not. And I think that starting from self and then being like, I am curious about other. I have made in I've made a curious foray. It was incorrect. Let me reassess. Is this, you know, and it's like inside of that conversation. And in a text, you're right. Like it's finite. It's also shadowy. Like you're right. We never get Hart's true perspective. It's Megan Benin's. But like 
our brains don't register that when we're in heart or when we're in mercy. It doesn't feel different than me meeting a new person being like, hey, what are you into? Or like, what's your favorite cocktail? Or like, where are you in your birth order? What's your air sign? Yeah, I guess. Okay, so two things. I think maybe part of like where the slippage is for me is that I assume empathy is like a benevolent actor and maybe it's actually neutral. And then the other thing is like, I guess I identify empathy as like having curiosity and then being like, okay, I, I see where you're coming from. Like I have come to understand you. Like I sharing your feelings, but I think filling in the gaps on someone's existence Like we had that conversation about like people who make other people villains in their story. Mm -hmm. That also feels like filling in a story and a backstory and putting your own perspective, which is something you do with characters, right? When you really like them. I mean, Heart and Mercy are quite heavily described to us. And like, is that empathy? I I don't think so, but maybe that's because I assume empathy. Maybe I'm just like putting too much of like a moral weight on empathy as a concept who's a sympathetic villain like who's a villain that like we all really understand not only understand but like could also like sympathize with i mean i've like we've seen really like hastily drawn villains like i would even say like the villain in this story isn't particularly well drawn but like that's not his job the other undertaker like but but we understand his motivations absolutely but he's not particularly sympathetic because we don't know much about him and we're not like interested in filling in his character Mm -hmm. and like i think you're right to say when we when we when we make someone a villain and we and like this has been a long-standing quibble that you have in romance where you're like if somebody is like too lightly drawn as a villain if their motivations aren't fully enough explained or if they're just like crude if they're just like villainy you really hate it and i think what's interesting to me about that is like that seems to be like a search for empathy you're like no one is just that right yeah that's like a refrain that you have and that to me is a search for empathy like the minute i knew that i was no longer a child like one of one of the high watermarks of like oh i'm i'm no longer this thing is when king triton in the little mermaid looks back and he's aghast at what he's done and i had that moment of being like oh man being a parent of a teen must be difficult and i was like you know it's like the moment i stopped fully sympathizing with ariel in that moment and had that one moment of sympathy for triton that like marks a kind of transition in my ability to think about empathy in a way that feels more adult and more curious like what is triton's deal that he's like this shitty to ariel who he clearly favors and like oh it's like he's afraid for her and like his fear manifests as violence and that's terrible but i also understand and can sympathize with where he's coming from and now he feels bad but doesn't have the language to apologize and like creates this whole like whatever and i think like even when we have lightly drawn villains, like, you're on a quest for empathy. Hmm. That's also, like, Gollum's whole thing, right? Like, when yeah, Frodo's Gollum like, I... Gollum is a very... Em- well, okay, but then we're talking about empathy and we're talking about sympathy. Sure, absolutely. They're different but related. And, like, I don't think you get on the road to empathy without first being on the road to sympathy. I don't think that's true. Really? I think you can be... I think you can empathize without sympathizing. Hmm. Because I think of sympathy as like, 
I, I always think of it in a customer service sense where you're like, yeah, I'm really sorry. That sucks. <laughs> you know, <laughs> this is a bad situation. You're right. You know? Correct. Whereas like empathy is like, oh my God, my heart just breaks for you. So they like orders of magnitude. Like orders of like connectedness, right? Like you can sympathize with someone without feeling what they're feeling, but you can't empathize without feeling what they're feeling. Or at least understanding it. Understanding is different. I think that I think you can sympathize with someone and still understand, right? Like the customer service thing. Like that would really, really suck if your pack if my package got lost, I would be so bummed. But my package isn't lost, <laughs> you know? Whereas like I think empathy is like feeling what another person is feeling while they're feeling it because they're feeling it. And that can be like falling in love with heart via the letters like we do in this book, right? That's having empathy with mercy. But I was thinking like something like reading a fantasy novel was somehow like more of an expenditure of your empathy because you have to like buy into this fantastical world. I'm not so convinced that that's true, and I think that that is your ability to buy into this fantastical world is your own need for escapism. But then how much does your own need for escapism also create what feels like empathy, right? Like I'm feeling what heart is feeling. But heart's not, there's no way for heart to confirm or deny that, right? Like we can follow what the text wants us to think pretty clearly, especially in books like this. There's not a lot of, but there are books with a lot of ambiguity there. You can learn a lot about someone by how they feel about a certain text or a movie or whatever, right? Sure. People love to use text and movies as Lippmann's tests. But I think people are using escapism in lieu of empathy because I think escapism is a way to not just when they're reading, <laughs> But when they're interrogating the world around them, I think I see a lot of people creating a narrative of absolution for themselves, mm -hmm. which feels like a sort of escapism, mm -hmm. being able to change your story. And people should be able to do that. People should be able to change their minds. We have to make space for people to change their minds. But to, to create an, a narrative around that, that absolves you feels like a kind of escapism. Maybe. I mean, I think uh, like absolves doing a lot of work in that sentence because like there are some mind changes that don't require absolution, self or otherwise. And there are some that require an external absolution. And if you're doing it internally and not externally, like that's a problem, which I think you're kind of like, that's what you're kind of hinting at without like the external work of like you, you harmed or like your thoughts were harmful and like you need to, you need to do a repair. I think that's like road rage. Sure. That feels like a form of escape, right? That's definitely not empathy. That is the opposite. You're like... You know, I'm gonna kill all... you. <laughs> Maybe what's what's okay? What's one step down from road rage? I don't know. Road rage is like a real problem. Right? You get cut off, and you don't think to yourself like you very rarely are like you're like fuck this person. They're an idiot. They've never. They don't know how to drive. They're obviously trying to kill me on purpose. Right. Like, that's a story and that's escapism because that allows you to, like, think of yourself not only as, like, the victim, which you are, 
when you've been cut off in track, Vic. But it also allows you to think like, you're not the type of person who would ever do that. And so like the need for empathy in that, the like capacity or like the space for empathy in that is like <laughs> completely sutured off. And also how annoyed are you by someone in your car saying something while you're like, fuck that guy, fuck that idiot. They're so fucking dangerous and like, blah. And then someone in your car says, you don't know what kind of day they're having. Yeah. And like, <laughs> fuck you too. Yeah. <laughs> or like, what if the car, like they can't adjust their seat and they can't afford to get their seat fixed, right? Yeah. Like there's a million reasons because guess what? You have cut people off in traffic. You absolutely have. If you were like looking down when you shouldn't have been and you didn't see them come out of your blind spot and like yeah or maybe you're just a dumb fucking idiot bitch driver <laughs> could be but like in the realm of romance right like even when there's bad feelings the feelings we know are gonna be resolved like yes. they're gonna be good feelings and so is it escapism or is it empathy to like identify with someone going through these hardships like in, there's no world in which I would hold someone accountable for the fact that they were raised by a single mother or dismiss someone because of that. I also don't think I'm particularly feeling for heart in that way. I think it might just be escapism. I found myself feeling for both heart and mercy at different I times. I mean, of course, of course I share their feeling, right? Like I came here, I come, I show up. I come to this I come to this laptop. You do. Once every other week to, to feel things with these characters. It's just like I don't know if like what I'm feeling for them is helping me grow as a person. Oh, okay. Well, or if it's really like empathy as we as we've discussed it. I think it's both like I think your I think your spectrum might need to be readjusted. How about that? Right? Where it's like, I don't think it's I don't think it's bad for you to show up to these feelings. No, I'm not, not saying it's bad for me. I'm just saying I don't think I'm doing this like big project of humanity and like I don't think that's what's happening here. But I do think you are flexing your empathy muscle. And like I think it's in the same way that it's like if you can't do any exercise, if you're not gonna show up to like your whatever, whatever workout, and you can take your ten thousand step walk, like that's that's not that's not bad, right? And I think like this text <laughs> and like romance in general and like genre fiction in general is probably more in like the ten thousand steps a day space than it is in like you know, mounting Everest. Yeah, you yeah. know, it's like you're not deadlift. It isn't. It isn't empathy deadlifting, um, <laughs> right? So like, are this you is really like flexing the muscle, or is it just like the fact that you can empathize allows you to feel good with these characters? Or it's like you're not letting that muscle atrophy, right? Like you continually work it, and like I think like that's the thing where it's like. It's good that we walk. It's good that we stretch. It's good that we do this. And like, I think it's like, it's that, right? It's that incremental work that genre fiction is really good at because it, it feels good while you do it, like walking. And I, like, I think it's, it's not the most you can do. It's, it's just not, it's just never going to be, but like, it's also not the least you can do. 
And I think like that is kind of the perspective here where it's like, you're right. It's not empathy deadlifting, but like empathy deadlifting also, if you do it all the time, is a good recipe for burnout. And like, there's like, there's, there's a way to do things well. And like, maybe you deadlift, you know, three days a week and then you have a rest day. Right. And like at the beginning of the conversation, you said empathy is not a finite resource. So maybe deadlifting is a bad example because your body is a finite resource. Yeah. And I have to say, like, I think being able to feel empathy with characters who you know things are going to work out for and like characters, who you know, good things are going to happen to. Mm -hmm. If I can't experience empathy for human beings who have a different worldview than me. Mm hmm then I feel like maybe that muscle is atrophied. And I feel like this kind of work, air quotes, it's not challenging enough to be significant. And maybe that's like where it comes with scale where it's like, maybe it isn't challenging enough for you. Because I'm a, I'm a, I'm like a really good person. Because you're a really good person. Because like, you're, you know, you're like, you know, just like, you're one of the best, right? Like, I'm, top five probably easily of people on planet earth yeah (laughs) but you know what i'm saying it's okay if someone's entree into stretching their empathy muscle is a book like this or romance in general or sci-fi or like something out of the ordinary right like even if they're just reading like um like if they're like if they're into tolkien and then they're like oh maybe i'll read you know, the dispossessed by Earth, or like the Wizard of Earthsea. Like everybody keeps talking about this Le Guin person. You know, like there there is a person like that. That's good too. Like however you get to the party. Le Guin might be a good example. I don't think every book every time is useful. Sure. Or helpful. I don't think Jinx was particularly helpful. No, perfect example. But I also like as much as I love Heart and Mercy – I think we're going to get into our weirdest parts that are actually in the book. Okay. <laughs> like, I don't think it's per- – as much as I, you know, full, I fully immersed, I loved it. It's not the dispossessed. <laughs> it's not the dispossessed. <laughs> it's not that, right? What's your weirdest part if it isn't this long thesis on whether or not escapism and empathy are bedfellows? It was just a loose thought I had that spun out. Okay. But I I think, like, my weirdest part Mm -hmm. is that this this book, amongst many other things, like, you said it was, like, an Earth in the future, and that didn't hit me really, but then I remembered, like, one of the islands, because they're in, like, an island chain, this world, is called Argentine. And, like, that's interesting. And so, like... We find ourselves, right, on a borderland uh, with people who wear cowboy boots if the cover is to be- – or cowboy hats. If the cover is to be believed, it's kind of just vaguely um, ascribed as a hat in the book itself. Feels like, Deadwoody. Feels Deadwoody, you know, talks about it's a desert town, things like that, except they've got a lot of water. And we have a border crisis <laughs> – But on the other side of the border are lost souls and zombies that are going to come across into your town and kill you for access to your appendix. It may like border stories. And this is actually like a physical 
like it's it's a physical it's like a veil it's a veil yeah it's not it's not well it is it is constructed by these like superhumans these gods and so it just like that kind of stickiness about it the border is a construction meant to oppress on purpose and then it leads to exploitation extraction it's all right there but it doesn't feel intentional enough (laughs) like it feels like it's all usa american (laughs) like id about border politics no i totally agree it's like also the id of like western american settler colonialism which is like that's just the wide open spaces or it's just like there's just stuff to extract not that there were people that had to be exterminated and removed um there's like a there's like an absence of people that is deeply in like the manifest destiny ethos there's just no people like the people who are there should not be there they want to occupy your being they want to be you they want to be you and get out but if they do they'll be like a a literal failed body. They're just going to rot and kill. And it has to be policed by a marshal. All of this is right there on the page. I guess this is my weirdest part. It's like all right there, but but that's not, it doesn't seem like that's the issue. Like there doesn't seem to be that perspective in the text. It doesn't seem to be, drumroll please, problematized. The border itself is not problematized at all. Neither is, like, the idea of a marshal service whose whole thing is just to, like... Like, and all the people who get across the border without permits to extract materials, they're, like, they're just bad guys. Like, there's a kind of desperation to them that, like, could potentially be empathetic. But it's, like, Hart certainly thinks that they're responsible for their own misery. Well, the one example we get is drunk teenagers. Like, they'll give teenagers booze in order to do it and it's just like these good time charlies extracting resources and then accidentally getting murked yeah teenage boys and it doesn't talk about like i mean i think it does kind of allude to like the desperation that sends people but the actual living people we see are drunk teenage boys and i cannot think of a less empathetic (laughs) Honestly, same. (laughs) But I like, you know what I mean? Yes, that is a very weird part about this whole thing. What was your weirdest part? I think like his demigod status was very weird to me. Kind of felt like a Dewey's Machina at the end that like didn't really need to be there. Like there wasn't enough going on with it. Like I think there would have been a different way for him to see souls that like would have been interesting because like it felt like his demigodness was also like a way to further like separate him from like the very small town populace that he was already very separated from both in terms of living. He doesn't have a home. Like he either sleeps out on the frontier with his seahorse or uh <laughs> I really love the seahorse the, kelpie things. I did too. I thought they were so great. Aquamares. Um, the aquamares. Or he sleeps in the barracks of the Marshall barracks and like or just a hotel. Or a hotel. Like he doesn't have a home. And like I think he was separate enough. Like he didn't need also to be like a Perseus. It was just another way for him to like have weird colored eyes. <laughs> 
Well, come on. <laughs> I was like, he kind of just had like any colored eyes, whatever. Um, that was like, I that felt like a hat on a hat or like gilding the lily a little bit for his like alone and separateness for me. Where I was like, mm, I don't think we needed that part. I like that he was a demigod. I think it did resolve well. We meet his dad in the end. He does some big fancy heroics. I don't want to give away too much. He does some big fancy heroics that are dependent on his demigodness. He's feeling real bad. I also think like his physical form is super tall, Mm -hmm. super strong. And the physical form of Mercy is also... Super tall, super strong. Sturdy. She's a sturdy gal. As a sturdy gal, demigod status would be useful to me. <laughs> I would like to be like I don't. I'm not going to get that like Scarlett O'Hara up the stairs, f- up the stairs thing. And think about how heavy her dress was. In addition, it's true. Me in one of those. You gonna get? A, you, do you have a dolly? <laughs> And he is. He is tossing Mercy around. She talks about how nice that is for her. I think his tall is definitely... I mean, he wasn't wearing spurs, but like whenever he walks into the office, I kind of just imagined spurs hitting the... on the hardwood. What was your sexiest part? Well, okay. I really want to acknowledge quickly that Mercy was one of my favorite female main characters, is my favorite female main character of size that we've read. Mm Mm-hmm. I really like the way the book handled it. Yeah, it was wonderful. Her outfits were great. Her confidence was great. Like, the way that they talked about her body was great. Yeah, it wasn't ever, like, a detriment to her existence. Yeah. <laughs> it wasn't, like, the cornerstone of who she was. Mm-mm. My sexiest part comes in Chapter 14, and I actually gasped out loud. I gusped. When I read it. Mm -hmm. So in the book, Hart sends out, they've got magical mail. Delivered by magical animals that speak and have very, very interesting personalities, which is 100% a reason why you should read this book. Listen, how do you feel about making furries male people? I didn't hate it. One was Niles Crane and the other was like a drunken bunny. I like, I didn't hate either version of it. Um, So he, he puts his letter out into the ether and because of their magical properties these milk milk not milkmen millikins millikins are able to identify who it needs to go to so they deliver it to mercy and mercy so they have this letter writing thing not unlike you've got mail if you've seen it where they are anonymously corresponding with one another and falling in love and so this is before they've met but they've exchanged a few letters and he's just been delivered a letter by from his secret friend, a.k.a. Mercy, who he hates in real life. Mm-hmm. Because he thought she was really pretty when he met her and he acted like an idiot and was inarticulate. And she took it as him being rude and he... Never forgave her. <laughs> never forgave her. Never coped. Hart, yep, Hart answered as he loosened the flap of the envelope. He loved this moment. The anticipation before finding out what his friend had to say to him. The silky sound of good paper sliding free. The rustle as he unfolded the letter. The first view of cursive dancing its looping slant across the page. It's very good. 
just like a very talented delivery of language too like the way all those words are kind of like whispery sounds they're also clothing words Yes, very evocative. Feels like a shedding. Mm-hmm. The uh, sensation, very sensual. Mm-hmm. It was so good. It was so, so good. good. What was your sexiest part? <laughs> I have so many sexy parts. It's a very sexy. The sex Such scenes in the book are very nice. Very good. So my first like real frisian moment. So a drudge gets into town. And it's coming for mercy. And the thing that you're supposed to do when a drudge shows up is to not move because like it's like a Tyrannosaurus Rex, right? Like if you don't move, it can't get you. Um, But it's like shambling really fast towards her and she's not moving. She's like totally stuck. He like misses on the first shot, gets it on the second. And then he puts both of his hands on her because like the drudge lunged and like hurt her arm. And then like he gets it down and he puts both of his hands on her face and he looks at her and says mercy. And it's like the first time that he's called her mercy rather than merciless. He goes, are you okay? And like really looks at her. And like she feels both protected but surprised. And like he's revealed too much of himself because at this point he knows that she's the secret friend. And he's like re-narrativized everything about her because of the thing that he knows about the letters, which she doesn't know about him yet. And it's just like one of those moments of dramatic irony that like He's like, he feels caught in his reveal, but he hasn't revealed anything to her. And it's like one of those things where like, he's like, oh, no, I've said too much. (laughs) And it's like just his face, like his hands on her face was so good. And then literally a few pages later, they're on like this like weird country dance floor. And he's like an incredibly good two-stepper and like puts his hand at the small of her back and like spins her around the room. I'm like, God, it's like, (laughs) it's so good. So this is like also key because this happens this part is also kind of the rupture against the like you've got mail little shop around the corner story so I did not realize that's what I was reading until they were going to meet at the cafe and she refused to believe that it was him and I was like oh that's what this is because I largely believe that you've got mail should not have should not be the archetype for enemies to lovers secret (laughs) epistolatory love story um there's only so many that can exist though right i guess i guess i guess but i you know when when they go to the cafe and i love how the book kind of shifted he goes into the cafe which doesn't happen in little shop around the corner or you've got mail right doesn't he He goes in for two seconds and then he leaves because she's like you have to leave i'm waiting for someone who's like well he's late and then he does leave I liked that Hart chose to stay he and does. Be, be pained. He is pained. And we, we could experience the pain and then like the heartache, as it were. And then I really like that this other wrench is thrown in of he himself, Hart, becomes a hero to her. And he's not even really a romantic rival to himself. He just has to find the right moment. And this feels like miscommunication trope landing really well it's like that one i think it's a johanna Lindsay, or maybe it's the widowist it's the rose in winter where he pretends to be like the deformed oh yeah whatever whatever and like he wants her to like call out his name 
but she thinks that she's married to the like masked weirdo and so like she doesn't want to betray her husband because she is falling in love with him they're like the same guy it like this is like that where like she stops they stop writing to each other because they're forming an in real life relationship and heart is like stoked because it means that she likes him and not like the secret letter writer he also knows that he has to tell her yes and that it will cause a rift but he's afraid to because he likes what's happening so much but things are going so well and at first it's like oh we're we're gonna actually like hook up right away Mm -hmm. like yeah no now is not a good time to bring it up you know like it it felt very um earned as you say i think extremely the stakes were right where they needed to be i really like that halfway through the book they get they get together and then this larger adventure can unfold because to be honest in the first half of the book i was like what's all this like hoo-ha and dilly-dally about (laughs) But the hoo-ha and dilly-dally all comes together, unless you think it's dumb that he's a demigod. I mean, I was satisfied with the hoo-ha and the dilly-dally. I loved also all of the stuff about – I loved the undead stuff. I mean, like the drudge, whatever, but specifically Mercy's – calling as an undertaker and like it's not just that you bury a body it's that you wrap a body in sailcloth and then cover it in salt as part of the like preservation but also the tradition of like because you're paying the boatman and like everybody gets their own boat rather than a coffin and like what you make the boat out of and like how it can like like all of that like the intrinsic details of like so rich and she loves it so much and like the fact that she's like been in keeping of this um whatever her last bird soul or whatever yeah bird soul and son and like there's never been a girl undertaker and she's like doing she's everything but in name and like no one is really like paying attention to that and so she's writing these letters and then finally heart who's been like really cruel about her job up until this point finally sees undertaking differently and like i thought Mm -hmm. that was so lovely and like has to has to shed the influence of his mentor father figure yeah and I think it really spoke to how when people take on father figures, they become even more deified than your a, a regular parent. Yes. The the new parents we collect become like weirdly <laughs> immovable objects. Yeah, know? they 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 begin to have their own gravity in a really intense way which make i think this book did such a good job of describing that relationship where it becomes really hard to like unyoke yourself from the myth of like the new parent figure i think that's it's empathy (laughs) this book did a lot and in really interesting ways i also think the way that it handled interpersonal conflict right so he has the father figure who like pretty much like you know did a lot but also did a lot of bad stuff and then he had this former partner that he's like become estranged from because she spoke a harsh truth to him about this guy where she's like i don't want you to like live in his shadow forever and he wasn't a good man in all the ways that you think he was and like he was actually kind of a hypocrite and he didn't want to hear that and like couldn't hear that and then like through his relationship with mercy he had been feeling bad about this estrangement and so he like there's this like reproachment which i thought was like really beautiful and like 
there's even a part where like he does his like big heroic thing and part of like so mercy finds out that he's this the secret letter writer and it happens at an inopportune moment and she finds the letters that she's written to him and they're in his like rucksack and she's like what the fuck are these and he's like i wanted to tell you and she and he's like i didn't mean to lie and she's like lying is a choice and i was like oof that's a good line like I, I, I'm empath- gonna throw that in someone's face. I can't wait until I've got two beers in me to throw it in someone's face. Because like you also I understood, hope someone lies to me soon. I can't wait because like it's true, right? Like he didn't want to because he didn't want to ruin a good thing. You can see why he's delaying and delaying and delaying. Like we understand where he's coming from, but she's also right. And then like she's mad at him later because he just leaves. Like he avoids the conflict. Like. They don't have it out in that moment. She tells him to leave and he thinks it means forever. And she really was just like, I need to cool off so that we can have a conversation later. And like, she tells that. she's like, He's like, you told me to leave. And she's like, I meant right then, but like not that you wouldn't come back the next morning and fucking apologize for your lies and that I wouldn't take you back. Oh my God. It's the little things, honestly. Yeah, I mean, this book takes a lot of material and makes it work and makes it really meaningful. And we get this classic kind of arc that I feel like is true in all of the romance novels that have resonated the most with me, which is that one of the main characters has a story they've been telling themselves about themselves, right? Hart is a loner, (laughs) And then he is confronted by the fact that he's not. He just chooses to ignore. Like, not even, like, that he chooses to be alone. But he chooses to ignore all of the... There's a scene where he uh, goes through several homes and realizes he has a great many more homes, even though he doesn't have an address um, than he realized. And that's just, like, one of my favorite arcs, I guess, is all I want to say. That also he's blonde. Tall blonde sheriff. Listen, there's a lot of anti-blonde rhetoric. In romance. In romance. Honestly. Anti-blonde man. It's a reaction to all the blonde men, I think, of like the 80s and early 90s. You think people are like, I'm different. Yeah. I like brunettes. Yes. Or men with raven hair. I've been thinking a lot about blondes because of that great piece in the New Yorker, <laughs> New York Times, about on blonde mm-hmm. and whiteness and white identity. But I think we also really associate like blondness with like a femininity mm. as well, like a white femininity, right? Which is like the only femininity that matters culturally, mm-hmm. and so or that is is legible as feminine, and so like maybe. Our disdain for blonde heroes has to do with, like, our disdain for femininity. Or maybe it has to do with, like, we can't objective – people can't effectively objectify anything that white. (laughs) Interesting. These are all very rough ideas. These are three weird bullet points. It's weird, too, because, like, I'm trying to think, like, in terms of – visual media like who's like the sexiest blonde dude that's come out in the last like 10 years i mean it it would be leonardo dicaprio would be the most recent in romeo plus (laughs) julia that's the last time a blonde man was hot titanic 
Well, was, I like my first thought was the guy who plays Jamie Lannister. Yeah, but he was bad too, right? Yeah, he was complicated. It was not an. Uh, it was not just like a straight up hero. And he got less blonde. He got less blonde. As he became more empathetic. He did, but Brienne of Tarth would throw. But maybe that's the whole point of her being so blonde is that she's like. The thing about the thing that you said about uh, white femininity, it's like, and she's kind of like the antithesis of white femininity because of how masculine she appears, and maybe like the blonde is part of that. That's interesting. There's a lot to parse out there. There is a lot to parse out there, but I think we've done a lot of parsing. <laughs> I love blonde heroes. I let I like Human Beast. Human Beast is great. Adam is his name. Um, first man. There's he's definitely got first man energy about him more than Adam Driver. No way. In girls, in girls, no. But no, in other stuff. Like I am still not on the Adam Driver train. I don't think. I Maybe I like, would if he was blonde. I feel like that's one of the great lines in HBO history. It's very good. Gemma says he's definitely got that whole first man thing about him. It's very good. You know who's a blonde that I can really get behind. Patrick Wilson in The Conjuring. Oh my God, I knew it. Yes, yes. I want to Patrick Wilson's get behind him and am behind him. I love his behind. It's so it's so good. This is a fine butt. But also, blonde is a construct. Blonde is a construct. Got that? I've got. I'm often referred to as a blonde. Well, certainly now because I've chemically burned all the pigment out of my hair. But the new stuff that's growing in, that's rat colored. <laughs> that's the color of a sewer rat. That's that blonde, that brond. Brond. That's that brown. It's been somebody who's uh, just in the city brown. The, like, why, why is my shoe just so dirty? I'm one of those dusty industrial revolution moths. <laughs> Since I moved to Chicago, my hair got dark. That's actually true. That's so funny. You're just adapting to your new environment. You're going to live is what that means. You can't those... see me in the smog. <laughs> those, those moths lived. So did all those black city squirrels until we cleaned up the environment. And now they're easy to find. On that note, is this a womance or a nomance for old Morgie Poo? This is absolutely a romance for me. I was so surprised by every I mean, I think it's a really strong work of fantasy. I think it's also really delightful. It has everything I want in a romance. It has an epistolatory, it has bathtub. Sure does. It has anthropomorphizing an envelope. Mm-hmm. It has a it has a streetwise talking bunny delivering your mail. Who loves bourbon? <laughs> yeah. Honestly, I couldn't put this down. I I'm a new mom and I read this until two o'clock in the morning like a total fucking idiot. My kid gets up really early. I was like actually mad how good this book is because like literal page turner. I loved everything about it. I didn't know it was going to be a way better. You've got mail shop around the corner. So that hit me like a ton of bricks. And I was like, oh, this is what's happening. This is so good. I loved all of the ancillary characters because none of them felt ancillary. All of them felt critical. And the interpersonal stuff was so great. I loved the family stuff. I loved the undertaking stuff. It was generally much scarier than the other spooky books we've read uh in the romance space and like honestly the world building was insane yeah, like it was so well done 
And so specific. Like your mm-hmm. soul lives in your appendix. And if you have a burst appendix, you get a soul beaker tattoo. Like yeah. I just, the stuff was so good. Everyone should go out and buy it. Everyone should read it. Uh, <laughs> two. Buy two copies. Buy two copies. I also copies. think it's a it's a great example of like how you can readapt an old fate. Like if you're gonna do a retelling, like Hart isn't even like Jimmy Stewart or mm-hmm. Tom Hanks. He's mm-hmm. not that kind of like wily rapscallion. He's regular. He's grumpy. Yeah, truly grumpy. Truly. And I think you know added a lot of texture and interest and retold it in a new and interesting way that didn't just feel like the same story in different costumes agreed it was it was its own thing the only thing that i have like notes for miss megan bennon rethink your border politics a little bit just like dig a little bit there just, it does feel just like pure id like it just spilled out you yeah know? just like dig just dig a little bit just like this is my only note Honestly, think about the West. It is it is interesting to use a Western and not think about like what the Western means, especially when you're from Kansas Kansas City, City. Gateway to the West. Come on, come on. But also, they not talk about that in the Overland Park School District. Apparently not. That seems like you know oversight. But you know what's not an oversight? How fucking sexy this book was. Very good. I'm going to go read it again. Yeah, I might as well because it's <laughs> delicious and spooky. We've got to go read another Western, actually. Teaser! Yeah! Teaser! Teaser! All right. With that, loosen your stays. But never your principles. Mm-hmm. Mwah. Mwah.